Let me just open up in a word of prayer before I begin. Father God, we give you thanks this morning again, and uh, we just keep coming back to you in prayer because we want everything that we do here to be completely uh, dependent upon and powered by your Holy Spirit uh, so that everything we do in worship is pleasing to you. And uh, we know that uh, in our own flesh, we would go sideways in a hurry. Uh, we would be off the track, and we would be uh, worshiping uh, the wrong thing in the wrong way. And so we just come to you, uh, dependent upon your Holy Spirit to guide us and uh, to make uh, everything that we do here and learn and reflect back to you, uh, just glorifying to you and sweet to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so continuing along here, we're in our fourth on the series on First Peter. And a uh, quick recap of last week. Um, uh, we were at, uh, uh, we were called to ectonos love, right? We got that new Greek word called to ectonos love, love that stretches out to the limit. Guys, it was uh, Valentine's this weekend. Did your love stretch to the limit this weekend to bless your wives? And um, wives, I guess I could say the same thing to you in terms of you stretching your love to the limit to bless your husbands. Um, but a very appropriate sermon at the time. And... Uh, but Peter acknowledges that we're still capable of less than love, right? Even evil, he begins to say in chapter 2. He says that these born-again believers, as Christians, were supposed to put away malice and deceit and all of those things that he talked about in the beginning of chapter 2. And he says, it's interesting, or notice, that in this case it's not murder or theft or fornication or drunkenness. He's not talking about sort of stuff like that per se. I mean, those things could be said, but Peter is assuming sort of a basic level of transformation in people here where he's saying you you have the Holy Spirit, you have the love of God poured into you, but you're still capable of malice and deceit in these things. I mean, you've, you've made progress, but there's still growing left to be done. You are transformed, but keep longing for more transformation. And so he slips into this theme in chapter 2 of transformation and of growing in this love and how we grow up into our salvation. And maybe Peter is even dipping into his own memories of, of, of Jesus at that final supper where Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples and, and he comes to Peter and Peter says, oh, you know, you know, you won't wash my feet. And, Pete, and, and Jesus says, unless I wash you, you won't be clean. And then Peter says, well, wash my whole body then. And Jesus says, you are washed, Peter, but I need to wash your feet. Right? So this is what he's reflecting on here. He's saying, you are washed. You have this love poured into you. But P Peter's not silly. I mean, I mean, he's realistic in the sense that he understands that there's still, we're still capable of these things. We're still malice of deceit and envy and, ma and malice even. And so he says, you need to keep growing in this salvation. And so you remember at the end, I, I finished by explaining how Peter proposed that we do this, how we put away these habits and begin to grow. He says in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And I said that by that, Peter means that we long for or we crave the word of God. And... Uh, that the word of God is the, is the word that endures forever. It's the word of God that Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And then I, I will tell you again, it's here in this text in 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3, this idea of the word being the way in which we grow. I think you got it up there. Yeah, that's great. Perfect. So 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3, it says, So get rid of all evil and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander and yearn like newborn infants for pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into salvation if you have experienced the Lord's kindness. 
Now that word there is interesting in the NIV or the ESV or the NET or the New Living Translation, just about any translation you have, modern translation like that, they've translated spiritual. And it's an interesting translation because there is actually a Greek word for spiritual and some of you may know it. It's a very plain one. It's pneumaticos, right? Or pneuma. You've heard of that, right? So pneuma is the spirit. Pneumaticos is the word that you would use for spiritual milk, right? But it's interesting because that's not the word that Peter uses here, even though he could use pneuma or pneumaticos. And in the New King James Version or in the NASB Version, they actually translate this a little bit differently because the word that he uses here is not pneumaticos. It's actually logikos. He says it's a logikos, pure logikos that you should be seeking. And logikos means either the mind or the word. And so when you look at this in the New King James Version or the NASB Version, it actually, I think, translates it better. It says, 1 Peter 2, 1-2, he says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil and all slender, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. It's the word that we should be longing for here. And I just find it, I just point that out as a little introduction. I just find it interesting that, that a lot of the translations translate that as pure spiritual milk when it's not pneumaticos, it's actually logikos. And it's really that Peter is trying to emphasize it's the word of God that you should be longing after. That is the pure milk of the word that you long after so that you grow in respect to salvation. And any, you know, and that's very striking infant imagery that we have there right we should be like newborn infants longing for that pure milk of the word right and and you have to understand that what peter is getting across in that imagery um you know this is the first century right peter's writing this letter in the first century and so there's no baby formula right there's no bottles um there's no any of those issues there's just one image here of babies longing for pure spiritual milk and that's where peter goes and the dads out here know exactly what Peter's talking about. I can imagine Peter was married, so he's at home, and maybe he's got, we don't know about his children, but, you know, he's left at home with the baby, and, um, you know, his wife is off at the well, or she's running some errands, and she said she was going to be home at a certain time to feed the baby, right? Dads, you're with me? You've been in this situation, dads? And she's going to be home, and so Peter, or, you know, or you or I, we remember, we remember sitting at home with the baby, and baby's all happy for about an hour, and then after about an hour, baby's a little bit less happy, Right? You know, and then start shoving everything that the baby can find into its mouth. Um, you know, and they're crying and they're squirming and nothing consoles them until mom comes back through the door, right? That's when baby gets really excited because he knows what's coming, right? And in a newborn infant, there's this built-up demand. There's a yearning. There's a desiring for sustenance that only one thing satisfies in this baby. Know what I'm talking about, right? And so Peter goes there. That's the image that Peter is giving these people in the first century. That's all they can think of. When he says yearn for pure spiritual milk like a newborn infant, he knows exactly the imagery that he's giving his readers. And that's the imagery that we have here in terms of Peter expanding on the desire that we should have for the milk of the word. And so we can ask ourselves as Christians, when we think of the scripture, when we think of the word of God, when we think of the Bible, are we like that baby that is just yearning, desiring to feed on that pure spiritual milk so that we can grow up into our salvation. That's what Peter is talking about. And we're going to look at each of these things in chapter 2 relatively quickly in terms of the things that Peter lays out, how we as Christians should be yearning after the spiritual growth and growing up into our salvation. First of all, he talks about who we become. 
Then he's going to talk about how we are to behave. And then he's going to talk about the results of this behavior. And then he's going to talk about our example and our power for this behavior. Okay, so I'm going to throw caution to the wind and try and tackle all of chapter 2 in one go. So here we go. Stretch your brains with me. Who we become. Peter begins by laying out in chapter 2 here the foundation of our identity as saints. Right? Remember I started off saying Peter loves doctrine. When these Christians are suffering uh, in uh, these different areas of Asia Minor and they're in, in, in dire straits, Peter comes to them and he doesn't give them sort of you know, chicken soup for the soul and he doesn't give them you know, encouraging cat posters. He gives them doctrine. Right? And so Peter starts out here in, and as he's speaking to these suffering Christians, he says your foundation or your identity in saints, who we have become, that's where Peter goes. If you are going to have hope, if you are going to have joy, if you're going to have this ectonos love that stretches, if you're going to grow up into your salvation, then you have to start by putting your roots down into real truth. And so he starts with who we become when we are born again. And so in 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10, as I read through this, and some of you are doing the homework in the blue book, and, uh, and I'm going to do this today. I'm going to mark it the way you would be doing your homework in the blue book to find out what Peter is saying to us. So every time he says you, because this is who we become, I put an orange underline so I can see what he's talking about believers. And so 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10. And coming to him, that's Jesus, as to a living stone, still Jesus, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now this precious value then is for you, underline you, who believe, but also, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they, not you, stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they are also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but you are the people of God, and you had not received mercy, but you have received mercy. So you see here, when you, when you just underline the word you, you start to see right away, it's almost easy now, right? That Peter is talking about what we have become. You living stones, you built up, you growing into a spiritual house, you who believe, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession. You're called out of darkness into light. You're a people of God. You have received mercy. Peter's just hammering it over and over and over again. This is your identity as a Christian. This is where you start with who you are and then you grow from there into your salvation. This is what you've become in Christ. And now I could go into a lot of detail on every one of those points, how Christians are kind of like the nation of Israel and how the nation of Israel was to be an example to the Lord, to bring glory to the world, to give glory to God, or how we're like a priesthood as an example to the nation of Israel. There's, there's lots of things you could dig into, and I'll leave that for you in your small groups to look into. What does it mean that we are each of these things? But Peter lays down this foundation that this is who we are in Christ. And as we grow up into that salvation, this is who we are. Peter basically says, grow into these clothes. This is what Jesus has clothed you in, so grow into those clothes. Be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession, called out of darkness, people who have received mercy. I mean, I don't have to go into detail. All of those things are good things, right? They're all awesome things. They're all good. 
They're really good, right? They're magnificent. And as you grow into your identity, into what you are in Jesus, how do you do that? Through reading the Word. How do we understand as Christians that this is what we are? It's through reading His Word, craving that pure milk of the Word. By reading His Word, like we did just now, just by reading that, you learn who you are, and then you start to think, well, how can I be that person? How does it apply to me? Now, that's who you are, and Peter says, bank on that, bank on that's who you are. But then if that's who you are, if that's who we are as a people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, how are we to behave? How do God's people behave if that's who we are? How does a royal priesthood, how does a holy nation behave in the midst of the world? Well, that's what Peter goes on to talk about. You look further in 1 Peter 2. And as we do, we'll underline in orange all the references to you again so we can see who he's talking about. And then, you know, I'm sort of sneakily teaching you how to do your homework here. And then if you were doing your homework, I circled everything that was a behavior. So every time Peter tells us how we behave, I circle it. So here's 1 Peter 2 now, 11 to 19. Beloved, that's you. I underline that because that's who he's talking to. We're beloved. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from every fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evil doers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or as to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only for those who are good and gentle, but also for those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, for it is the sake for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. And so as you go through the text and you start circling all of the things, it gets easy again, right? It's almost too easy. Peter has all this instruction on how we are to behave. You know, it just pops out of the text. You can see here are all the behaviors that Peter is expecting out of a people who are a chosen people, who are a royal priesthood, who have received the mercy of God, who have been brought from darkness into light. Here's all the ways he wants us to behave. Now, I went through the whole chapter and I found 20 calls just in 1 Peter 2 to specific behavior, right? There are 20 things that, he, that I could mark in here that were behavior that Peter expected out of his people or out of, the, out of the people that he was writing to. And so it's easy to see that all you orange underlines are supposed to do all these things, orange circles, right? And, th- and then you can just see immediately what Peter is teaching. The key ones out of the 20 were to abstain from lust, to behave excellently among the unbelievers, verse 12, to do right, in verse 15, to love the brothers, love Christians, in verse 17, fear God, in verse 17, and submit to human institutions, in verse 13, honor all men, in verse 17, and and then to bear up under sorrow, in 19. And so Peter says that believers who have their identity in Christ, the cornerstone, who are being built up into a living temple, who are a royal priesthood, they behave this way. They abstain from lust. They do right. They conduct themselves with excellence. They fear God. They love one another. They submit to authority. That's what growing up into your salvation means as Christians. And so Peter in chapter 2 here, he's just outlining for us the, the foundation of our identity as Christians the way in which we're supposed to grow by the milk of the word, and then what we are supposed to grow up into, into these behaviors that he just expects a holy nation to, part- to participate in. 
But you might say at this point, you might say, but aren't we free from legalism? Isn't, isn't the triumph of the gospel that, that we don't have lists and laws to follow? You know, what's all this behavior stuff that Peter is talking about? Isn't, isn't the whole point that we have been set free? Are we not free? And Peter would agree with you, right? He addresses that directly. He says, act like free people. He says, you're free. So act like free people. But don't use your freedom as a covering or an excuse for evil. You were set free not by following a list of rules, and you're not free now because you do follow these lists of behaviors that Peter lays out. You were set free by grace, and but now it's grace that has set you free from sin doesn't let you persist in sin. Okay, So as a holy nation and as a royal priesthood, the grace by which we've been set free is the same grace by which we no longer are captive. It's kind of like a captive having been set free from prison doesn't remain in prison. Peter is essentially saying, don't use your freedom for continued captivity. Act as free men, but don't use your freedom as a covering for evil. You've been set free from prison, so why would you stay in your cell? Right? You've been set free. You have this freedom, so don't use your freedom to remain captive, is essentially what Peter's saying. Peter says, if you're free, we should see your behavior begin to start growing up into the salvation that you have. If you truly are a holy nation and a people of God, then these are the behaviors that we'll start to see. Now, what is the result of this behavior? If we start to behave this way, if we, if we start out with our, our, our salvation and our understanding with who we are, and we understand that these are the behaviors that we grow into, what is the result of this behavior? And Peter gives the results of this sort of mature behavior here in the text as well. And I'm not going to mark them, but here are the three things that Peter explicitly says result from this behavior. In verse 12, I'll just do them one at a time. In verse 12, your deeds are gospel. I'm paraphrasing there because in verse 12 he says that you will do right, do, behave with excellence, that, that they might cause people to glorify God. That they might, our good deeds would cause people to glorify God. That's a result of this behavior. And so Alexander McLaren, he's a Scottish preacher, and he wrote, Alexander wrote, the world takes its notions of God most of all from the people who say that they belong to God's family. They read a great deal more, us, sorry, they read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. Let me say that again. The world takes its notions of God most of all from the people who say that they belong to God's family. And they read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. Right? That's what Peter's talking about here. Peter's talking about the fact that as people see our good deeds, they may cause people to glorify God in the day of visitation. They may eventually come to their own salvation prior to the coming of Christ. And so if you are maturing as a Christian, your behavior should start to influence others around you towards Christ, right? They should see a difference is essentially what Peter is saying here. Peter's saying that if, if we act with good deeds and we act excellently and we honor people and we submit to authority, then there should be a difference that's seen. It should not be the case where your behavior stays at exactly the same and nobody sees any change over any time. Peter is saying, grow up into your salvation. Yearn after the pure spiritual milk. Mature into this identity that you have as God's chosen people. And so if you are God's chosen people, somebody should notice. Somebody should see the difference, and by seeing the difference, it may cause them to glorify God. If, if people can't see a difference, then you're not growing up into your salvation. You're not maturing in your walk. 
Or even worse, if you're being influenced by others to actually behave worse because their behavior, the behavior of the world, is influencing you, you know, then your maturity is actually going backwards. You know, so as, as Christians, when we read this and we understand what Peter is teaching about growing into our salvation, we have to look at our own behaviors and say, are my behaviors influencing others towards God? Is that what's going on? Or am I getting influenced so that my behavior is staying the same or maybe even getting worse? So this is an encouragement then to a godly life which is essential to evangelism. And now the group whom Peter was writing to here, they needed to hear this because they were in a very stressful situation, right? Chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us that they were scattered abroad and we talked about all of that in the introduction to Peter, right? They were Christians scattered throughout hostile pagan places, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia, you know, all these places with strange names. But Peter could have just as easily said, you know, Sudbury... Peterborough, Halliburton, all these places with strange names. Um, you know, Christians scattered into, these, into this pagan world and having to live in that pagan environment, this encouragement to them was to live a godly life in that pagan environment that you're in, in that pagan world, because you can influence them as a holy nation within that world, right? And so Peter is writing this to these people fully aware of the environment that they're in. And now as Christians today can't we say that we're living in a pagan nation? I mean, I barely have to answer that question, right? We certainly are. Can we not identify with these people who are living scattered abroad in these strangely named places and living among people of very different customs and very different values and morals than us? Right? That's precisely why our behavior has to have an effect on our ability to show people the gospel because the world has wandered so far away from the values and from the truth of the Word of God, that when we live according to those values, we stand out. You cannot live according to God's values in today's culture without being noticed. If you are invisible, then people are not aware of the value or the, the character of God in you. Right? This principle comes from Peter remembering what Jesus taught in Matthew 5. Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And that's exactly what Peter is teaching here, right? Peter is, is taking the teaching of Jesus and saying it in verse 12. It's as if they see their good works, then they will glorify God. And if we are living in this culture the way these Christians were, then our difference, because we're Christian, should stand out. Because our culture is really no different than it was in Asia Minor at this time. The fact is, is that we should be noticed as being different by the people around us. You know, and we've given up, um, you know, sort of so many, so many p- sort of territorial places as Christians already. And, and I'm not raising all of this to, you know, restart the fight on prayer in school and all of those things, you know. But we've we've given up ground in so many places as being different as a Christian culture that that we largely become invisible. And Peter is saying, don't be invisible. Peter is saying, live in such a way that by your good deeds, people notice the difference in you. And that they understand that there's a difference between what's going on in the world and what the truth of God is and what the truth of Scripture is. And so that's what Peter is saying. And so one of the results of our behavior is that our behavior is it's the gospel, that it causes people to see the goodness of God and to eventually glorify Him. And then in verse 15, the second thing is it silences ignorant accusations. 
So Peter's speaking here of people who are willfully ignorant of God's truth or foolishly disobedient to God's word, and they're criticizers or critics of Christianity. And so they take a foolish position, and they take an ignorant position, not meaning a stupid position, but just an unknowing position. They don't, they don't have knowledge. And so they attack the truth not knowing what it is that they're attacking and not knowing the truth about it. And Peter says the way to silence them is not by what you say, but by doing right. In other words, Peter says the the behavior here of of the holy nation, of a chosen people who are submitting to authority and and walking humbly and and with excellence is that they don't get dragged into arguments. uh, They don't answer evil for evil. They don't retaliate, right? That our behavior, our good and right behavior silences those accusations simply by the way we behave. That by simply not being able to be accused of these things or by behaving in such a way that is above reproach that these accusations against Christianity fall flat. And Peter says the way to silence those accusations is not by what you say and not by arguing and not getting into a fight over these things, but by simply behaving right. And then thirdly, the third result from our behavior is that it, in verse 19 is that it finds favor with God. So finally, Peter says, in terms of the result of our behavior, this is our reward. It says in verse 19, it finds favor with God. So these submissive servants uh, who don't retaliate against unreasonable masters, which we could just say is the world because we're all sort of serve the world in one, rece- in one sense. And these, these, these submissive servants who bear up under suffering, they find favor with God. And that's a good thing. That's what we want, isn't it? The Apostle Paul says that you know, he doesn't uh, box at the air uh, uselessly or he doesn't run aimlessly. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.24, he says he runs to win the prize, an imperishable wreath. And Peter says that same thing here. As we grow into our salvation and we take on these new behaviors that come from this pure milk of the word, then it finds favor with God. Right, So not only is it the gospel, not only are we standing out in a dark world and our behavior can cause people to glorify God, not only does it silence our critics because our behavior is upright and just and excellent so that they have no accusation against us, not only does it accomplish that, but it also finds favor with God. As God's chosen people, as we grow into our salvation, as we start to behave with excellence and in good deed and loving the brothers and honoring authority and being submissive and bearing up under sorrow, then God is pleased and it finds favor with God. And then finally, true to his word, Peter sets this whole Christian experience on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, right? After verses 4 to 8 where he he talks so much about this cornerstone Jesus, where else could he set his teaching other than on that cornerstone? And so as we come to the end of of 1 Peter 2, in verses 21 to 25, he says, he gives, Peter gives our example and our power and where our healing lies, and it sits on the cornerstone of Christ. He says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And... While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. And so, I think I have one more. If you hit it, yeah, there you go. Marked it. So as you get in there and you start to mark, this is how you mark Christ. You mark it with this little red underline with a cross. 
And as you get into the text and you start marking all the times Jesus starts talking about, or Peter starts talking about Jesus, you realize, hey, what's he talking about here in this last paragraph? Well, by the looks of it, he's, he's talking about Jesus. Talking about Jesus a lot, right? He says this is the example that we follow in his steps. Verse 21, he says that he uttered no threats. He, or sorry, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. Jesus didn't retaliate because he trusted God the Father would deliver justice. It was not the duty of Jesus to judge or demand justice, it's, or it's not our job to seek vengeance. It's God's job to take care of that. And so Jesus is, first of all, in this behavior, Jesus is, first of all, our example. We're to follow in his footsteps. We are not to revile. We are not to utter threats, right? We're just to entrust ourselves to God and let God take care of the results of our suffering or the results of the offense against us. And then in verse 24, Jesus is also the power. It says that we might die to sin and live righteously. And the so that there speaks to the power of the cross that broke our slavery to sin. It's the fact that Jesus took the punishment for our sins on himself by which or so that we are to be set free of sin and live righteously. Or as Peter has said, you know, do good, behave with excellence, honor authority, submit to masters. All of this stuff that Peter is talking about, he's saying is done by the power of Jesus on the cross. Because we can sit back and we can say, well, you know, that's all fine to say, but how are we able to do it? But if you back up and Peter says, if indeed you are born again, and if you are feeding on this pure spiritual milk, if you are in the word of God and you are growing into your salvation and you are appropriating your identity as a holy priesthood, as a chosen people of God, and if you are doing all these things, they all come from and they all flow from the power that came from Jesus Christ on the cross that he died in order to bear our sins so that we are able to do these things, so that we might die to sin and live righteously. And then finally, the healing is by his wounds, it says in verse 24. So Peter is not pretending that the, the hurt doesn't happen, that the suffering doesn't happen, that, there is, that there's nothing going on, that, that, uh, you know, that, that people aren't hurting under this, this bearing up and under this humility and under this submission to authority and, and as we don't revile and as we don't repay evil for evil, that there isn't somehow suffering or that there isn't somehow a hurt on us. But Peter says, where do you take that hurt and where do you take that suffering? You take that poverty or imprisonment or grief that we suffer with and we take it to the cross that Jesus has covered it. Verse 24 says, By the wounds of Jesus on the cross we are healed. We're healed temporarily in the present by following the example of Christ so we can heal relationships and we can uh, heal the situations that we're in by following the example of Christ. And then we're healed in putting aside grudges. We're healed by the grace of others around us. We're healed by living in a family of God where we have brothers and sisters that care for us and show mercy. There are all these different ways that that through Jesus we're healed in the present, but then we're also healed in eternity when we reach reach our reward at the end of this passing life. That there is a final eternal healing that we talked about in the second message. This final eternal reward and eternal healing that's complete and final, and we're healed in Jesus in that. So throwing caution to the wind, we've covered all of 1 Peter chapter 2 in one fell swoop. <laughs> and the theme that we come back to in, in 1 Peter is this idea that he is reaching out to his fellow Christians who are scattered abroad in a pagan world. And he is basing his encouragement to them on, on sort of one key thing here. There is a pure spiritual milk. 
There is a pure milk of the word that we should as Christians be yearning after. And if we yearn after that pure spiritual milk, if we have a real hunger to be into the Word of God, if we study it the way we just studied chapter 2 here, if we get in there and understand who our identity is in Christ, exactly what He has done for us, how we are to behave, how we follow after the example of Christ, if we yearn after that spiritual milk, then we will grow up into our salvation. His encouragement to these people is, don't stay where you're at. Don't, don't stay as babies. Continue to yearn and to desire the milk of the word. And so that as you desire that milk, you'll know your identity in Christ. And as you know your identity in Christ, then you'll be able to behave in a, as a holy nation and as a royal priesthood. And then out of that behavior, Peter says, there's opportunity for evangelism. That as we behave as the people that we are called to be, and as we're fed by the word of the God, that we will have this behavior amongst the nation around us, that it will cause them to glorify God, that it will cause them to um, wonder who we are as Christians. And so the, the most important part of our evangelism is, I won't say the most important part, the first part of our evangelism, the first part of our evangelism is how we behave. And how we behave then sets the tone for and sets the opportunity for us for the most important part of our evangelism, which is being able to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around us. But until we have that behavior, until we act rightly, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, submit to masters, respect our masters, bear up under sorrows, until we start to do all those things, then our gospel doesn't really have an opportunity. And that's what Peter wants. He wants, his, he wants these Christians who are reading this to grow up into the salvation and to grow up through the word of God, to behave in such a way that this has an effect on the, on the, on the culture around them and to do it all on the strength and the reality of what Christ has done on the cross for us. Let's pray. Father God, give you thanks for this morning and your word through Peter. And uh, it's a dense text as we've talked about a few times now already. Peter is just dense with doctrine and it is uh, dense with instruction. And so uh, we do sort of throw caution to the wind when we try to digest a whole chapter at once. And, uh, but Father, I just pray that as we've been in First Peter and uh, looking at this chapter, that it has landed on our hearts, um, his desire and his earnestness for uh, the believers that he was writing to to understand this, this basic truth, uh, that as we yearn for growth and as we grow up into salvation, it should change our lives. And as our lives are changed, it will impact the world around us. And as the world around us is, is impacted, we have opportunity for the gospel to bring glory to you. And uh, all of it, Lord, is dependent upon what your son has done on the cross. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would take this teaching, that you would take uh, the time in our small groups through the week uh, to review this and through the homework, uh, to settle it in our hearts and settle it in our minds, uh, to be like these infants that Peter talks about, to be yearning, to be desiring the word of God, and to be seeking uh, to gain nourishment from it so that we can grow up into the full maturity of our salvation and be this holy nation, this people of God that you have called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.